0: Dear Asian Americans, let's celebrate, support, and inspire. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan. And today, on episode four of Dear Asian Americans, I am so excited to share my conversation with Trisha Sakuja Walia, CEO and co founder of Brown Girl Magazine. And in my conversation, we learn about her upbringing in Queens, New York City. And we learned about her college life at Stony Brook, her pursuit of law school, how she got her start in the world of journalism, and eventually becoming the CEO of Brown Girl Magazine, a media company that is dedicated to sharing the stories of South Asian women globally. I am so excited and grateful that you decided to join us today. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Tricia. Trisha, welcome to the show. Thank you for making time.
1: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And
0: I am personally super excited to have you on the show um, on our launch week of the Asian Americans. I discovered you and the magazine in my research for the show. And, and self-admittedly, South Asian woman is a not, not the most robust part of my social network, even in the Asian American part of my <laughs> life. So I, I was delighted to find you. And in speaking with friends, particularly Rajiv, who is also on this show, um, he had glowing things yeah. to say about you. Had a chance to read a little bit of your work and, and, your, and your background, and I think it's amazing. Um, so I'm really excited to speak with you and and learn more about the work that you're doing in the South Asian uh, woman community. So thank you for again, welcome to the show. Tell us about Trisha in your own words. What, what have you been up to, and how did you come to this point?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's definitely um, a lot. Um, you know, I think that I've always two things. I think I think I've always kind of had a knack for. South Asians, right? Like, I've just always been intrigued by my own people. And I, you know, I think started in, in, that started in high school because I co founded our, you know, South Asian like student club. It was called, it's called Desi Club. Desi represents folks who are from India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. And yeah, I just wanted to be a part of a club. And, you know, for a while in high school, I was actually going to the Greek club because there was nothing else and I actually went to a brand new high school so we did not have many clubs you know so we had to start we had to start everything on our own it was just something I I really wanted to do and I can't believe that since high school since the early days of high school I've been organizing and cultivating a community for south Asians and it really has you know, I've kept that going somehow. It's very, you know, subconscious that it's happened. It hasn't been something that I've like, thought about only recently have I really looked back at the last, you know, 20 or so years. And I'm like, Oh, wow, like, I actually have been cultivating a space for South Asians, even in high school, because that's when I started the first South Asian club. And then in college, I was so, so involved in the South Asian community. And I was on the e-board of the South Asian Student Alliance, like pretty much every single year, hosting events and panels and just trying to bring our folks together from all various parts has, has always been a big part of what I've wanted to do. And so Brown Girl is just a beautiful way to, you know, do all of that together with content and storytelling and business development <laughs> and make it a thriving, you know, sustainable um, living company.
0: I think it's awesome that you've evolved and progressed from something that you did informally just as a teenager and formalizing it through the formation of, of a student club. And, and now this is my job and our stories deserve to be told in a business savvy and profitable way. That last piece is something that many of us struggle with, not necessarily Monetizing our stories, but um, that there is a market for people to want to share similar stories. How did your family become Indian American? How did they choose Queens as their landing point? And how do you think growing up there impacted the way you viewed yourself in light of biculturalism? Yeah,
1: for sure. So we came here in a very unique way, different from most immigrant stories. Um, we actually came here on a work visa for three years, my dad was appointed by a government led company that he was working for for almost 15 years. Um, And it's a export import company. And he had come here as, as the lead accountant. And he was, you know, set out to help this project for the for the next three years as the accountant. And yeah, I and you know, we actually moved to a very, very Asian American neighborhood in Queens Bayside. And so, yeah, if you're familiar with Bayside or Bay Bridge, you know, it's still predominantly pretty Asian American. And we came into this like beautiful town. We were taken care of by the company, actually. So our everything from our rent to down to our newspaper actually was taken care of, like cable as well. Um, they even paid the clubhouse fees on a monthly basis. So we could learn swimming and tennis and be a part of the Bayside Baybridge community. And yeah, we just like, we took it all in. Like we did everything. Like my parents, I think one thing I give them a lot of credit for is that like they jumped in knee deep, right? Like, like I remember struggling with pizza because of pizza, you know, there's always pizza parties in class and I was so nervous and I didn't want to try pizza at school. So that same night, they didn't hesitate and they ordered themselves a pie of pizza um, so that they also <laughs> eat it awesome. and be like, you know, this is not scary, but in, I, for some reason I was genuinely scared of it cause it was round and big and I just wasn't sure about it. But yeah, so like they would just like jumped in, right? Like they brought us to swimming. We took swimming at the age of like my sister was like one and I was four and a half, five. Right. And she made, my mom made sure that we were making use of that club and, Thankfully, my parents did know good enough English. So that did help them assimilate a little bit quicker. Um, And yeah, we watched, you know, every classic Hollywood movie that we could find back in the early 90s. You know, Um, I remember they went hunting to get me a Halloween costume. And I remember that day on Halloween, my mom had invited a few kids from our hallway into our apartment to really ask, hey, what is Halloween why do you celebrate it? You know, and to like, just like learn more, right? So I think my parents kind of always had this like knack for asking and they still ask a million questions and I know where it comes from. And I think that helped us to assimilate a little bit quicker. And, um, and yeah, they made sure I went to ESL. They made sure we were only speaking English at home. Um, and we did almost everything and anything to just assimilate. That's awesome. Uh, It's awesome. But then it took us a long time to kind of reacquaint ourselves with our South Asian identity, too. So it was it's, it's kind of like a you win some, you lose some, you know. So in that process, I did unfortunately lose my mother tongue and I had to pick it up later. And it's not the same, you know, but at the age of four or five, when you're learning a language, it's either you learn two really well or you just learn one really, really well. And so, yeah, I was only able to fully grasp English and my and i kind of lost a bit of my mother tongue and i i did lose a chunk of my indian identity at the time and it took a while to kind of reacquaint with it but but we did assimilate <laughs> really fast like l- almost <laughs> like within 2 years
0: i actually lived in bayside for a year in high school oh um, cool. yeah so we we did we moved to new york for what ended up being just my freshman year in high school and then we moved uh closer to the train station in Flushing for the next two years. So Uh, we live right by Bay Terrace, the shopping center. Um,
1: Yeah, I was right there.
0: Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful uh, little town. And, you know, I I think it's definitely evolved over the years. But Queens is one one of the, if not the most diverse county in the country. And, you know, Bayside, I think even by the time I got there in in the late 90s, it was definitely, you know, a melting pot of sorts. You bring up a good point, though, because I think that's a struggle that you know, how much of my culture do I want to uh, impose or or teach in my children versus this pressure or this need for them to be, quote unquote, an American success. Therefore, we're going to help them uh, assimilate as fast as we can. It's something that I struggle with daily now, having two young kids of my own who are second generation Korean American kids living in LA. Even what language do you speak to him at home versus school? And a, a quick story about it's it's crazy, but when when my son first went to daycare for the first week or so, he didn't drink milk at school. Really? Because you go to his teachers and say "uyu," which was what we called milk at mm. home. The teachers had no idea what the heck "uyu" was, so they're like, I, "He must be you know baby gibberish."
1: <laughs>
0: and we're like, "Holy crap!" You're like, "You didn't get to drink milk because you don't know what to call it," yeah. you know? But it it's just you know, ever since then, it, it's just trying to be mindful, and, and we are you, me, and our generation collectively at, at such an advantage um, of understanding what American culture is and isn't and, and and how healthy pride can definitely help people like us. And I can only imagine the decisions that our, our parents had to make in a in a very literal foreign world where they're still being treated differently, their language is not up to par or in a cultural awareness.
1: Of course. Um, and they're mostly... Aware. That
0: is... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you, you find communities, but you know, it's then it ends up sort of becoming this insular bubble that it's hard to form your own thoughts, all while trying to raise kids and do what's best for them. Going from Bayside, you went to Stony Brook, which it's about 45%, 50% Asian American, judging by how many friends of mine from high school went there. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was pretty Asian back then. Was that a culture shock at all? And, And how did you find your community within the South Asian Student Alliance there uh, within the Desi community?
1: Yeah, no. So after Bayside, we actually did jump around um, a little bit, but more different parts of Queens. And and we really, the craziest part of it all, unfortunately, was that the three-year project that my dad was here for, it actually failed within a year and a half. So they were sending my dad back to a really small town in Calcutta, India. And, um, Yeah. And my dad was like, we can't go back. You know, like, it's like, we can't go to a small town. It's like, you know, they had sent us from New Delhi, then to another small town, Bhopal, then to New York. And then they were sending us back to another small town. And my dad was like, no, like, now we we have to stop moving around. And we need to really just settle down. So after 15 years of working for this company... He decided to quit and he gave himself six months to take the CPA exam, which is the exam accountants take. That's their like higher degree. And so, yeah, my dad gave himself six months. It's four exams that you have to take in order to get your CPA license. And um, yeah, and he took all four within six months. And, and most folks who sit for the exam have to also have um, a graduate degree. And thankfully, my dad had two, three different types of graduate degrees from India, just because he's always been a very studious kid, to say the least. And um, yeah, so he literally took all four exams within six months and passed it. And he was like, this is my indication, basically, that I should stay in the country and not leave. But I can't imagine what those six months were like for my parents, because they were on a cliffhanger, because my dad had put up this crazy, you know, like, if I fail, we're leaving. If I pass, we're staying. So I can't imagine what kind of burden my mom had to take. Um, But yeah, but we stayed and he quit. And then we had to literally start over. So that is like the crazy part that we came here, you know, with our rent and newspaper paid. But then we quit and we literally started over, moved to a completely different town. And, you know, my dad had to find a new job. Then we pretty much lived in Glen Oaks. um, And that's a smaller village within like the Bellrose area and then i did elementary school there and i did middle school there and i also did high school there so then we we pretty much stayed you know for like the next like 15 or so years in one neighborhood so that did help me um and in that neighborhood is when i finally saw more south asians because you know when i was in bayside there were no south asians at the time at all actually my Teachers, when I first moved to Bayside, they thought I was Indian, as in I was Native American. So literally, I would always have kids ask me because we, you know, everyone was learning about Native Americans in kindergarten and first grade, right? So everyone would ask me what Indian tribe I was in because Asian, if you were Asian, if you were Asian, that means you were Asian American. You weren't South Asian American, you know. Now, if you're Asians, yeah, right. Like now, if I say I'm Asian, like people will automatically assume, okay, she's South Asian. But back then, wow. if you were Asian, you were just Asian American, or you were Indian, as in Native American. So I told the class, I'm Indian, and they thought that I was, you know, from a Native American tribe. And um, yeah, so, but 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 moving further into Queens, um, into Glen Oaks, the Belrose area, that did help me a lot. And I found, like, this was literally the first time I found Indian people and other South Asians, and I made... A few friends finally in middle school was the first time I made real friends. So, a lot of elementary school, I just didn't have real friends that I could count on because I did a part of elementary school in Bayside and I felt pretty ostracized. There was only one other Indian kid in Bayside and I actually know him now, which is so funny. Um, but yeah, so it, it was tough. You know, it was definitely tough not knowing my identity, not being proud of being Indian not even telling people I was Indian. I remember very, very like vividly, even in my early middle school days, I would tell people that I'm half Christian just so that I wouldn't have to tell them that I'm Hindu. And I remember doing that and I think back and I'm like, that's so embarrassing that I did that. But I really did. Like, I remember this one kid in class would always make fun of me because I was, he would always be like, oh, like he would just, you know, say the word Hindu in like a really weird condescending way. And I would always like snap back and be like, no, but I'm half Christian. And I would just like make that up, you know? Wow. That (laughs) that was my (laughs) self-defense.
0: I don't think we develop a healthy sense of who we are, particularly from a, you know, a cultural, racial and religious perspective until much later in life. And I find fascinating to hear stories of how, you know, friends and fellow community members sort of deal with that in, in adolescence or even younger, because the easiest thing to do is to shun it or to allow them to make fun of it it's again, one of these things where you look back and you're like, it's embarrassing. Perhaps it's how could I have said that about who I am? But I, I think every person listening shares a little bit of that moment. Perhaps it was food related, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many stories of our parents packing us our food to take to school. And then kids are like, ew, what is that? And you're like, now I'd be like, screw you, dude. Like, this is my food. Exactly. Let's you know, Or let me teach you about it. Yes. You know, but back then it was this point of like, man, I wish I had a peanut butter jelly sandwich 100%. or you know, what, yeah, or whatever extremely stereotypical American food there ever was. You know, yeah. I am so glad that we're able to have these conversations now about just the realization that it's OK to have done what we've done just simply we didn't know any better or, you know, we didn't have the right amount of self-confidence through other role models or, or storytelling to say, dude, that food, like that's our cultural thing. Let me share with you why we eat it. I find it so fascinating, though, Tricia, that back then there weren't Indian or South Asian people in, in Bayside, that part of Queens. Because that wasn't that long ago. And and now it's just probably even more diverse and, and fully robust.
1: Um, Definitely diverse, for sure. Yeah, it must be. I haven't been back in a long time, but it, it must be more diverse, for sure. There has to be more South Asians in the Bayside area. Yeah. But no, at the time, there was literally... <laughs> Only me and this one other kid, and he. We didn't really talk, you know. But we, but we had randomly bumped into each other as adults, and now we have a bunch of mutual friends, you know. And we both recognized each other, and we were like, "Are you, are you from Bayside?" And he was like, "Yeah, you are too, right?" It was weird.
0: Take me from a journey from Glen Oaks to choosing um, Stony as your, yeah. your your place of school, and and how did you find oh, the social sure. home there?
1: Yeah. So you know, I. Was always interested in going to a state university. So I was very interested in Binghamton University, actually. And I was so close to going there. But just in like the very last minute, I chose Stony Brook over Bing only because I realized how when I really got in, then I really realized how far it was. And I was like, oh, wait, Bing is actually kind of far. (laughs) It's so silly. But like I grew up with really thick eyebrows and like as most Indian American girls, have to deal with, you know, they have to deal with being hairy. That's just something we have to deal with. So this is so silly, but I was so worried about getting my eyebrows done at Binghamton. <laughs> and I was, yeah, it's, it, it, you know, I was made fun of a lot for my thick eyebrows. I honestly grew up with a unibrow. And so I just always had this like big insecurity about, you know, hair on my skin and on my face and on my arms. And I was just, and I finally in high school, I got myself into a really good place where, you know, I was able to go threading and waxing and like my mom, like, you know, was okay with it. And it took a long time for me to find that place for myself where I was okay with dealing with my hairiness, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, so going to Bing made me nervous because I was like, I wouldn't, I won't be able to handle that. And things were far in Bing and I wouldn't have a car and you know, and again, like South Asian stuff still wasn't that predominantly available. Like now it's like every one block, you have an eyebrow salon, just like you have Starbucks, you know, but that wasn't the case then. So to be honest, it like that was a big determinant to make me stay closer to home. And I knew if I went to Stony Brook, I would be far enough to dorm, which I wanted to do, but close enough to still be able to come home and and also to be with my parents. And I, and I've always kind of had this like, You know, this this thing in myself where I want to be close to my parents as much as possible. And it's weird that even as an 18 year old, I kind of had that in my head, even though I didn't verbally express it. I felt it. And I realize that now because I'm like now as a 30 year old, I'm like, no, I can't be more than 45 minutes away from my parents. So wherever we live, it has to be 45 minutes max one hour. Right. But now I can fully express that. And now I'm not embarrassed to express it either, you know. But yeah, but honestly, I chose Stony Brook for those reasons, and I'm so glad I did because it ended up being a second home. And um, yeah, the South Asian community at Stony Brook was just so remarkable. And I I knew that there were definitely a ton of South Asian kids there because I had a few mutual friends who were already at Stony Brook, so that helped me. So I didn't walk into the university, like completely, you know, blank, I did walk in with some friends, and I think that makes a big difference. And yeah, I I just got myself really involved both in Greek life, and also in the South Asian world. And so I kind of did both, I experienced both worlds on on campus. And that's a unique experience to have to be fully immersed in Greek life, but then also go to all the you know, the brown parties and really host all the South Asian events and kind of really find myself, you know, and I took up two minors, I did journalism and gender and women's studies, but I got my bachelor's in political science. And then I actually stayed for an extra year to do my master's in public policy. So I had a full five years worth of experience at Stony Brook. And I did, you know, a ton of summer classes, I even did some winter, winter classes. So I like think my college experience was like, I did everything, there was nothing left like when I was graduating, I was like, there's nothing left for me to do. Like I'm good. You know, like <laughs> I've lived out my experience. So yeah, it was, I love it. I just went back. Actually, I was grateful enough to be recognized as Stony Brook's 40 under 40, just two weeks ago. So oh, congrats. Went, That's just, awesome. Yeah. I was just hanging out with a few of a few people from like, you know, journalism and political science classes and, um, and now I'm really looking to be a part of the alumni group. And now they're really looking at um, starting a South Asian alumni group. And I hope to like get really immersed in it.
0: That's cool. And um, would you say Greek, was it traditional Greek or was it Asian Greek system?
1: Yeah, the traditional Greek life. Yeah, I, I joined a sorority, Sigma Delta Tau. And I actually was one of the first um, Indian Hindus to cross in the sorority in 2008.
0: Were you two different people when you were with your sorority? community versus South Asian community. Yep. Tell me more about that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, two totally different people. And I think one thing that I've learned being an immigrant is that you just kind of have to be a chameleon. You know, you just have to, wherever you are, you kind of have to immerse yourself in that environment. And yeah, I mean, I remember um, being one of the first people ever to host a a Greek mixer with a Indian fraternity and my very, very American sorority. And that was the first time that that had ever happened on campus, you know? Um, and it was just like a foreign experience <laughs> for the non, um, the non-cultural orcs to hang out with the cultural orgs. Like why was that such a phenomenon? But it was right. Yeah. Like it was so wild that that even happened. And I remember working with other cultural orgs on campus like the latina orgs and the african american orgs and i had worked with them for sasa stuff for south asian student alliance stuff you know so i really did merge my two worlds in many capacities and but it was just such a crazy foreign experience that that hadn't happened before and um and yeah being the first indian hindu to cross was definitely It was just, it was so unique. Um, I was grateful to cross with a few of my Pakistani Muslim friends. And two of them, I'm like, they're one of my best friends in the world. And yeah, and so we experienced this together where we were the first South Asians to be a part of the sorority um, on Stony Brook campus. And we definitely felt as normal, a little bit different, sometimes ostracized, but nothing too intentional. And I look back and I'm like, wow, like that was, I I have really fond memories. And I walked away with sisters who have become my best friends and sisters in in real life. And and many of them were in my bridal party and many of them were at my wedding and they're still a part of my life. And I wouldn't have been able to experience this non-South Asian world if it wasn't for that. And I think also because I was, I was struggling so much as a young Indian girl trying to fit in with American girls, right? When I finally found my place in the sorority, I really like was able to like share those stories with them and be like, I can't believe this girl made fun of me and that girl made fun of me. And now to think that, you know, these same girls want to try my food and they all wanted to wear Indian clothes at my wedding, you know, it felt like, wow, like, that's that's (laughs)
0: awesome. I I think it's one of those worlds um, where, for many of us who went to pretty diverse college campuses where there were bountiful Asian-American organizations and even perhaps particular multicultural or Asian-Greek organizations, the the intersection or the overlap of those two cultures rarely, rarely do overlap. So it's so cool mm-hmm. to, to hear stories of you, you know, bringing the two communities together and, and then just learning because that's, that's what college should be about, to explore and to learn. And and so many people just, I think, further double down on the communities that they belong to when they came in you know, not necessarily try as much as they can to try to expand their horizon. So that's pretty cool. Now now you're the co founder and CEO of a community focused and and gender focused digital and and real life media company. What did you want to do in getting all those degrees and studying political science? And what did your parents think? Did they put the pressures on you as the triumvirate the doctor, lawyer engineer? How, How was your career decision making process?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I always wanted to go to law school. And that's what I had intended on doing. My dad actually has a law degree from India. And so does my uncle. And um, that was just something that, you know, he wanted me to do, but I genuinely did want to do it too. Um, So, you know, I was so intrigued by this one female lawyer that I would see on TV on this Indian, uh, you know, television soap opera show. And she was just always fighting for rights. Um, and so I was so intrigued by her and I, I I knew I wanted to do something and be something like her. And yeah, so I had full intentions of going to law school. And uh, you know, that's honestly why I picked up my minors in journalism and, and in gender and women's studies, because I wanted my law school application to stand out. I wanted, you know, law schools to see that I was a very well-versed student who can read and write. And uh, I cared um, and I wanted to make a difference in the world. And um, and yeah, I, you know, I remember like one of the main reasons I even joined a sorority was so that I can better my connections in the legal world. And I really thought that it would kind of get me to law school and beyond. But unfortunately, I just never ended up going to law school. I took the LSAT five times and each time it just didn't go well for me. And, um, I took a bunch of courses. I did Kaplan. I did Princeton. I did a couple of private courses as well on long Island. And, um, I just wasn't good at it. And that really sucked at the time. And I was devastated and I was, I would cry after every LSAT exam and I would cry after every score that I received. And I just thought that I was failing my parents and I just felt so helpless. But, um, but during all this time, I got I, I, was, I, I sought the opportunity to stay a year longer at Stony Brook so that I could get my master's in public policy. So it was great because I was able to start the masters as a senior. so I got in through their joint program. And so that really helped me, you know understand you know how policies are formed, you know, um, how policies even impact our day to day. I was able to do a couple of really cool internships um, that related to public policy, mainly in the education se- sector. And um, it just allowed me to learn about campaigning and urban planning. So it did really give me a good glimpse on what I could be doing if I were to become a lawyer. Um, but unfortunately, like law school just never happened because I never felt good about my LSAT score, and it just wasn't good enough. Um, and it it sucked to be, you know, a, a student who and a, and a girl who kind of wanted this and then to realize that I wasn't good enough
0: for it. And how did you then go from that to what eventually led you to not only digital media and journalism, um, but also really finding a niche in sharing your own stories?
1: So thankfully, I picked up journalism as a minor and that genuinely did help me. And through journalism, one of my class assignments was to find a blog that we could write for or the assignment was to start your own blog and i definitely was not in any capacity to start my own blog i wasn't interested in doing that honestly just scoured the internet to see if there was something that i could write for and i've never been a natural writer it always takes me quite a bit of time to to write and to and to just even you know process my thoughts on paper. So I needed to find a blog that I could feel comfortable writing for. And I found, thankfully, I found Brown Girl Magazine on Facebook. And I was like, Oh, my God, I could totally write for this. Like I had never encountered South Asian centric blog. And um, I emailed the, the founder, I found her email address on the masthead. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm in New York. And I knew that she was based in Texas. So I assumed she needed some New York or East Coast writers. And I was like, you know, I'm a journalism minor and I I do hard-hitting news. I'm really good at it. I could do some hard-hitting news for you guys. You know, will you accept me? I sent her some news pieces that I had done at school and for my school newspaper at Stony Brook. And yeah, I started writing for Brown Girl and I started doing hard-hitting news for them. And that's literally like sparked my journalism career. And, and through that, it kind of just spiraled, right? Like I got, I gained more confidence writing for the school newspaper, I um, started just writing more at at Brown Girl in general. And I realized I didn't know I didn't realize at the time that I was going to write or be a journalist, I didn't fully realize that. But I knew that at least I had something else going for me.
0: And you stayed involved with Brown Girl, as a side hustle or as a part-time gig throughout your, your evolution into adulthood and yep. journalism correct
1: Yeah exactly yeah so I so I graduated with my masters in public policy I was pretty lost I didn't really have like a viable career option at that time and I was looking for some jobs in public policy but yeah I kind of landed this gig at a PR firm. It was a South Asian PR firm and they wanted me to help them with some marketing copy and just some content overall for some of their brands that they were promoting. And yeah, so it was so yeah, I started writing for them and I still had Brown Girl at on the side. And so now I'm more involved with Brown Girl. Now I'm realizing that I can recruit some of my friends to start writing for Brown Girl. So I really started recruiting some people. I started doing mini barter agreements with people to promote their company in in exchange for their services. You know, I did that with one of my really good photographer friends who was with me at Stony Brook, and he actually (laughs) was the photographer for my wedding as well. But I remember doing a barter agreement where he would do portraits of me and I would write, you know, a feature on him. And that was like the first barter agreement I ever did, not realizing that it's even called a barter. Yeah, (laughs) I just started doing things. I started recruiting writers, and so many of my friends from college are still involved with Brown Girl. And this is, you know, now, you know, seven, eight years ago and almost a decade actually. And yeah, I just, I didn't realize that I was, I was recruiting and I was making a difference at Brown Girl. I didn't realize that I was starting to edit stories. You know, I literally would be like, no, no, no. I want to edit the story. And I didn't realize that I was like getting good at it. And um, slowly I was like, wait, I actually want to learn how a CMS works. Like I want to be able to input a story into the back end of the website. I want to know, how the back end of this website looks. And I didn't know that that's what I wanted. I just did it because it felt like the right thing to do. The founder at the time and her managing editor, I just kind of just like butt my nose into their into like their little duo and I was like, you know, bring me on. I can I can edit for you guys. I can help you guys. I can manage writers for you guys because I always had a knack for managing people you know i was managing people and in so many different clubs forever and so it was just so natural for me to kind of want to take lead in some capacity and um and yeah so i was like hey if you have pieces you don't want to edit you can just give them to me and i remember literally teaching myself wordpress like they had a mini um style guide which i have expanded on since then but they had this mini style guide that i just read over and over and i would google so many things about you know what is a meta description or where does the headline go? Or, you know, what is a slug? Like so many things in the back end that you just like, now I know as a journalist and as a web content creator, but back then I had no idea what any of these things were. And I started inputting story stories and I finally got in a place where I was able to publish my own stories. And then yeah, and little by little I was because I started recruiting writers on the East Coast, they kind of became my writers. And so I just organically formed my own little team, and I became managing editor. And that's when I started really realizing that doing brown girl on the side was good for me. It was really enhancing my journalism career that I didn't know I had and I didn't know I was working towards. I just knew that I was doing something I liked.
0: And what was the decision point to make this your full time gig?
1: law wasn't working out. I wasn't getting a gig in public policy because I didn't have enough enough experience in public policy for anyone to hire me. And yeah, so through my PR agency, I got another gig writing for a local Queen's newspaper called the Queen's Tribune, and they were around forever and ever. And unfortunately, they just shut down a year ago, which was like, totally heartbreaking for me, came on board as a beat reporter specifically to cover Western Queens, which included Long Island City, Astoria, Jackson Heights, Sunnyside. Um, And yeah, so that was just like an amazing that was definitely the biggest pivotal moment because I had officially become a journalist. And I didn't know that I was becoming a journalist, that wasn't the plan. And yeah, but I I knew that I was always interested in news, but I didn't know that I could become a journalist, you know, and yeah, and so I was, you know, and and minor, if you're a journalism minor, it's, you know, it's, they kind of make fun of you a little bit, you know, because you're not a journalism (laughs) maker. And there were, there were so many nuances about journalism that I didn't know, like, you know, I didn't know that a lead was your introduction paragraph. It was like simple things like that, that I had to learn on the job, you know, as most people do, they learn mostly on the job. But yeah, I just remember, you know, my, my, my managing editor at the time, Stephen, who was amazing, um, and so hard on us, but I'm glad he was hard on us. But I remember the first Few months of me writing stories, like everything was X'd out and read. Like everything. I had to do every story over. I had to do every lead over. My sentences were too long. I remember the publisher came up to me once and he goes, Read this lead. And I read it. And he goes, Did you take a breath? And I was like, No. He goes, Yeah, because it was too long. Break the (laughs) sentence apart, you know? And so, yeah, I just remember just like really learning how to write and, and take what I, heard and put it on paper and transcribe it. And it's hard to, you know, transcribe what you've heard and and put it into a nice, beautiful, concise story with limitations on word limit, right? Right. Because this is a newspaper, you needed to write within a certain word limit. And I was always writing more than I needed to. My sentences were always longer than it needed to. I always explained more than I needed to. So through that gig, I really learned how to concisely share my thoughts on paper. That is awesome. And that's when I really became a journalist, yeah.
0: How did your parents take the news that you wanted to be a full-time storyteller versus law or or something that they, you know, wished or expected you had done?
1: Yeah, they were not happy at all. And they were like they they constantly thought that I would end up going to law school and they thought law school was still going to happen. They were at least okay that I had a real gig and they were excited about, you know, when they saw my byline on a newspaper, they did get excited that, you know, okay, at least Trisha's doing something that's, you know, that we can at least talk about <laughs> and they weren't fully embarrassed. But, uh, but yeah, they did. I mean, there were so many fights. There were so many arguments. There was a lot of, you know, it was, they were, they were heartbroken and I understand I was heartbroken too, but I think, but I think they saw that. And I think that helped me a little bit because they saw how heartbroken I was because I genuinely was. I mean, I I did really try. I wanted to go to law school. I cried my eyes out every single time, you know. So I, I think that kind of helped. They didn't think that I was just like a shitty kid who just didn't care, you know.
0: And how do they feel so, about your career now?
1: Yeah, it's so different now. I mean, of course, it's still it's tough, right? To like you know have your own thing. I think my dad is very. Ha- my parents both are very happy that I do have my own business because my parents now have their own business. So I think they know that working for yourself is the American dream. So they are really excited that I do have my own thing. You know, they're, 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 they're always their parents, right? They're Asian parents. Yeah. And and we're, we're really working towards making Brown Girl fully sustainable now. And so that's hard for them to really watch, but they're grateful that, I'm married, so I think that gives them a really big sense of, okay, she's settled <laughs> in that capacity. And I get it, like being an immigrant kid, being an immigrant parent, like I understand their fear and I don't ever – now that I'm so much older, I, I, I'm i empathetic towards it and I don't re- rebel with it, you know. And maybe 10 years ago, I did rebel a lot and they know that i rebelled a lot. But now I totally, you know, I'm very sympathetic to their feelings. And uh, yeah, as a crazy coincidence, my husband did end up going to law school. (laughs) And he did not intend to go to law school at all. He was not going to law school at all. But, you know, we had met in college and we had met exactly during the time I was studying for the LSAT. And I needed just more study buddies around me. And I was like, will you study with me? Because I think you'd be really good at it. He went to St. John's University in Queens and I was at Stony Brook and we met through Greek life, which I'm very grateful for. He was actually pursuing government as a major in college. So he was interested in government and news and politics. And that is actually one of the reasons why we met a mutual fraternity brother was like, hey, you know, I know this guy. I know this brother at at St. John's and he's really interested in news and politics like you. And, you know, he's really involved in Greek life. And, you know, maybe you guys should meet. And so, you know, thankfully we did meet and um, I didn't think of course he would end up being my husband, but yeah, I was just like, dude, you should just study with me and maybe you'll do good. And he did like, you know, he didn't take online courses and private courses like I did. He just studied with me and he ended up doing really well, going to law school and starting a legal tech company in law school. So that, it's that's just pretty funny cool. how things work out. So now get can <laughs> talk around about it with my parents. Let's see. <laughs>
0: Brag about Brown Girl a little bit. What what is where are you now and and where do you want to take <laughs> it? What is
1: the grand vision? Oh gosh, you know, um I'm excited about where Brown Girl is. I think this is the right time for it. Um, I think I've genuinely been grateful to watch it grow from you know the very beginning stages where Brown Girl wasn't cool and it wasn't something that people did, and feminism wasn't you know a a thing and it wasn't a trend well now thankfully it's more than just a trend it's a staple now but yeah i've been able to watch that wave and i've i and south asians weren't doing cool things in the way that we are now and there was no such thing as south asian creatives right and we didn't have superwoman and we didn't have um and Mindy Calling and all these other—I mean, there's a million other South Asian folks that I can that I can call out—and we didn't have that just five, six, seven, eight years ago. And they too were trying to find their own path at the time. But in this last one decade, I've genuinely been able to see the rise of South Asians across the world, and especially in America. And I've been able to be a part of that in so many ways, and it's been amazing to watch. And I'm genuinely grateful to have watched that. I'm really grateful to have Brown Girl in my life. It has done everything for me. It has given me a career. Um, It has given me a sense of belonging and a community. And we have 200 freelancers who write for us from all over the country and Canada and the UK. And we're slowly growing a base in Australia. And we have collaborated and partnered up with almost every type of South Asian creative and almost every type of South Asian company and brand. And we have promoted almost every type of South Asian event and nonprofit. Like we have genuinely done everything that you can imagine in the South Asian space. Like there is not one piece of news or current event or or just person that we haven't touched or covered. And it's crazy to think that I genuinely, and I say this a lot, I consider Brown Girl to be a mini Google for South Asians. So if you want to find anything related to South Asians, you just need to go to our search bar and you need to type that term in and you will find some content that relates to whatever you're looking for. And that's because we've been genuinely consistent and dedicated to telling stories that relate and resonate with South Asian folks living in the diaspora. And that's been the mission from the start. And that will always continue to be the mission. And in the last two years that I finally went full-time, I am the first full-time person at Brown Girl. And it took me two years to um, buy the shares of my two the two original business partners at Brown Girl. And I spent two years fully dedicated to just paying back the loan that I owed them for the, for the shares that I bought from them. And now in 2020 is the first time that, you know, we can officially um, really look at Brown Girl um, as a company that, that is ours <laughs> and, and we can fully grow it in the way that we want to. And, um, and then the last, Two years in addition to content, we've been able to put on some really cool events, um, you know, from pop ups with other South Asian vendors to book readings. We've done so many different types of panel discussions with different people from, from different sectors and industries. And we've been able to host um, a period party to celebrate Menstrual Equity Day. Um, we've been able to host various music events that put other music artists on stage for the first time ever. And then our biggest marquee event has been Slashy Summit. A Slashy is someone who has a full time, um, but is pursuing various side hustles. And it's a term coined in the Urban Dictionary. And it's specifically meant for the millennial generation because now us Asian-American, South Asian-American millennials, we all have side hustles, right? Like, Jerry, you have side hustles and I do too. And, And it's crazy to think that we're now able to kind of really look into our creative selves and be able to live that. Thankfully, because of social media and Instagram and Twitter and having our own blogs, we can pursue side hustles and actually make some revenue off of it. And so we've done the Slashy Summit twice now. This past year in 2019, we saw 400 South Asian slashies from around the country and even India join us. And um, we were so grateful to have more than 30 brand partners and we had more than 88 speakers um, speaking on 12 different panels. And we hosted 10 different workshops. And we even had an art exhibition focusing on Muslim American identity. And we also had a fashion show in the evening with four South Asian designers and 31 models. So I can't believe that we pulled off such an epic event. But Slashy Summit has now really become a part of my my life and my ethos. and. A lot of it comes from my life at Brown Girl, right? Just like being a slashy and having side hustles, and I'm I'm genuinely really excited for the growth of Brown Girl and Slashy in tandem, and and beyond the events and content, we've also released our first apparel line called Larky Power, and Larky stands for girl, and so you know there's no better there's no better apparel than girl power for Brown Girl, and um, and we've always been at the forefront of feminism from day one. Before it was, you know, before it became a staple in, in our community and in in society in general. So I'm I'm excited to be able to, you know, continue to produce evergreen content, but now also level it up with in person events and apparel, and hopefully we'll continue growing in all. I'm those fired up.
0: Sectors. I mean, you 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 are yeah. the the master marketer and, and storyteller. So I, I'm so excited. And and for everybody else who's listening that is fired up to support Brown Girl, how can we support you? Where do we go? How do we sign up? How do we consume all all the beautiful world that you've created?
1: Sure. I appreciate that so much. You know, of course, following us on our website is so important, browngirlmagazine.com. We genuinely are producing new content almost every day. And um, beyond it, of course, we are so active on all three uh, main social media hubs, you know, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And I'm assuming we're going to have to start, you know, doing some TikToks, but we're not there yet. Um, And we have a pretty robust um, newsletter as well that you can sign up for. But beyond this, we are, you know, finally in 2020, we are going to pivot just a little bit and really allow for the website to become more interactive and add more features that allow the website to not just be a one-dimensional experience. Um, You know, something that we've always thrived on is user generated content. Brown Girl is here today because thousands of people have contributed. And now we want to open that space up to anybody and everybody. So instead of just emailing us, very soon, hopefully, you can just have your own login and contribute your own content. Not hit publish yet, but at least draft your own content. So that's the next evolution of where we're headed at Brown Girl, is allowing folks to have their own user profile and to really boast their own user profile. And so instead of emailing us, you can write your own content and that's where we need to be headed next. That's
0: a hell of a legacy to leave behind, Tricia. Thank you. I want to leave you with one final thought or one final question. Sure. I, I picked the name Dear Asian Americans because I felt that us speaking to ourselves to celebrate, support, and inspire was something that we could do a little bit of a better job of, not that it was lacking in the community. So I'll start and then you finish the letter. Dear okay. Asian Americans.
1: I hope that you uh, see yourself for who you are because because we belong here.
0: Thank you so much. I, I emailed Trisha, straight cold email, and she responded within the day. She was excited, just as excited as I am to do this and, and share the story of Brown Girl and I don't think any of us who are trying to uplift the voices of our community and our friends and peers to leave a lasting legacy, not just for ourselves, but for our kids um, and their friends, we can't do this without the loving and endless support of other people who are on the same mission. I really, really appreciate the work that you're doing. Best of luck. If there's a slashy event in LA in the future, would love to come. And then to have learned about you throughout this process brings me a tremendous amount of joy and pride and most importantly, just so much excitement um, in the future. So Trisha, thank you so much.
1: Of course. Well, I appreciate you having me on um, on this podcast, and I genuinely look forward to hearing more um, Asian-American and South Asian-American stories. And I'm so excited to finally be able to merge our world. And that's something I genuinely am working on since the latter half of last year is understanding how you know we can we can form this one big gigantic Asian men- melting pot. And so yeah, I, I'd love to continue to stay involved. So thanks for having me and I look forward to hearing more stories um, from you.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Dear Asian Americans episode four with Trisha Sakuja Walia. If you enjoyed the episode, please share this with a friend or two. subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave us a review. Special thanks to Justin Park and Peter Hong for allowing us to use their music to introduce the show and to Jason Liu and Allison Chang. Learn more about the show at DearAsianAmericans.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Dear Asian Americans. If you or somebody you know would love to come and share your own unique Asian American experience on the show, please let me know by sending me an email to hello at DearAsianAmericans.com. Signing off on episode four of Dear Asian Americans. This has been your host, Jerry Wan.